Whether this is her first Mother's Day or her 40th, she deserves more. Shop tons of stunning on-trend jewelry for every budget at Diamonds Direct. Diamond fashion jewelry, beautiful birthstones, everyday pearls, starting at just $200. Commemorate the real loves of her life with a gorgeous pendant featuring the birthstone of the one who made her mom. This Mother's Day, Diamonds Direct is everything you need to say thank you. Diamonds Direct, your love, our passion. Online at DiamondsDirect.com. Live Nation presents Concert Week. From now through May 14th, get $25 tickets to over 5,000 summer shows. That's up to 75% off a summer full of your favorite artists like 21 Savage, Alanis Morissette, Cage the Elephant, Celeste Barber, Dirks Bentley, Janet Jackson, Megan Trainer, Peso Pluma, Sean Paul, Sum 41, and many more. For way less. Grab your tickets now through May 14th to see all of the artists you love all summer long. For just $25. $25 each. Visit LiveNation.com slash Concert to buy now. That's LiveNation.com slash Concert to buy now. From BBC Radio 4, Britain's biggest paranormal podcast is going on a road trip. I thought in that moment, oh my God, we've summoned something from this board. This is Uncanny USA. He says, somebody's in the house. And I screamed. Listen to Uncanny USA wherever you get your BBC podcasts. If you dare. Dealing with pests can be a pain, but relax. Terminix can help. Because when pests show up, so does Terminix. With over 95 years of experience, they have what it takes to take on any pest problem fast. If your home or business has pests, don't stress it. Terminix it. Visit Terminix.com to book your appointment online today. That's T-E-R-M-I-N-I-X dot com. From UFOs to psychic powers and government conspiracies, history is riddled with unexplained events. You can turn back now or learn the stuff they don't want you to know. A production of iHeartRadio's How Stuff Works. Hello, welcome back to the show. I'm not wearing a hat. Are you wearing pants, though? I am wearing pants. My name is Matt. My name is Noel. They call me Ben. We are joined, as always, with our super producer, Paul Mission Control Deccan. Most importantly, you are you, you are here, and that makes this stuff they don't want you to know. This is a wartime episode. As we record today's episode, the United States of America is still in the middle of of the longest war in the country's history. That means there are literally people listening to the show today who were not alive when this war began. Think about that. The United States invaded Afghanistan on October 7th, 2001, and we are still there as we speak. Why? How much did our leaders know, and when did they know it? To answer that, Oddly enough, even though this country has been at war in this other country for the better part of two decades, many people, many voters, aren't 100% sure what Afghanistan is, where it is, and why it's such a big deal. And it's also not the first time we've been engaged there. No, 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 no. Uh, this, uh, this has an interesting name. Uh, so first things first. 
Here are the facts. Afghanistan is located in what is commonly called Eurasia, right? The 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 vast stretch of land between uh, Asia and the continent we call Europe. It's landlocked. It's bordered uh, by some greatest hits countries in the rogues gallery of the United States historically, Pakistan, Iran, Tajikistan, Uzbekistan, and China. Its capital is a place called Kabul. Outside of several cities, the country is uh, extraordinarily rural. We're talking places that are simply physically hard to access in the mountains or in the uh, rugged wilderness. The country itself was not officially formed until 1709, but as you alluded to, Matt, it has a, a history, a long and bloody history of being a battleground. In fact, Afghanistan is sometimes called the graveyard of empires due to just the sheer number of militaries that tried and failed to control it. And it's an interesting thing there because – and just when we're talking about it's the battleground – right? The place where the wars are fought or the battles are fought. And generally controlling the area is kind of the goal. But a lot of times, and and this is what we're going to kind of outline here, is that it's the the land, the place where two different warring powers end up, where they just kind of go, right? So it's not, it's not as though Afghanistan itself is rising up to, you know, fight a lot of the battles. It's generally, it's where proxy wars happen. It's where um, it, it's interesting. We're gonna we're gonna continue on with this throughout the show. So let's just keep going down into the the history of Afghanistan. Okay, let's do a little ancient history, shall we? Yes. Okay. So experts believe that early humans were living in Afghanistan as long as fifty thousand years ago, um, because it was rich soil uh, for farming. Um, there were communities of farmers in Afghanistan that were some of the very earliest farmers in the entire world, um, and for a time the area was known as Ariana or the land of Aryans. This was because multiple waves of people from Central Asia migrated to the region, uh, and many of these settlers were, in fact, Aryans. They were speakers of the parent language of Indo-European languages. Um, Aryans also migrated to Persia and India in those prehistoric times. And then let's jump to the 6th century when the Persian Empire of the Achaemenid dynasty controlled Ariana. And uh, good luck saying Achaemenid. It's really fun to, to look at and write. In about 330 BC, a little guy you might remember named Alexander the Great defeated the last ruler of the Achaemenid uh, dynasty there. And he made his way to the eastern borders of the place that was called Ariana. Now, after this guy... Old uh, great Alexander himself died in 323 BCE. In his early 30s, feeling that he was a failure, by the way. Yeah, yeah. No, that Alexander, he sure was great, wasn't he? I mean, he was, uh, he was a guy. He was a guy. He did great things. He did some huge stuff, whether it was great or terrible. Is depending on which side of the battles you were on, I he suppose. He did some large-scale stuff. Let's leave it at okay, that. Okay, that's – yes. There we go. Um, so he, he died in uh, 323 BCE. All these other kingdoms that are out there, let, let's name them off here. The um, Seleucids maybe? Seleucids? Uh, Seleucids. The Bactria and the Indian Mayuran Empire, they all were fighting to attempt in an attempt to control this territory that was known at the time as Ariana. So understandably, there were a lot of folks jockeying for position and, and a lot of kind of power grab situations. 
In the vacuum, yes. The history of Afghanistan involves a ton of handoffs and power grabs with a lot of names that might be unfamiliar to, you know, unless you have specifically studied this history. So strap in. We're just going to do some highlights. A lot of these empires are no longer around and uh, the names will sound unfamiliar. In the 7th century, A.D. or uh, C.E., whichever way uh, you want to go with that, uh, Arab armies carried this brand new religion of Islam to Afghanistan. And the western provinces of Herat and Sistan came under the rule of these Arab forces, but the people of these provinces revolted. They returned to their old pre-existing beliefs as soon as uh, these military forces were not you know, literally using violence to make them pretend to practice Islam. In the 10th century, Muslim rulers called Samanids from Bukhara and what's now Uzbekistan extended their influence into the Afghan area. And this this kind of, when we say extending influence, it means that there was a soft hegemony, uh, you know, expanding there. People started to use uh, the currency of those rulers. They started to speak similar languages. They acquired their culture. So the uh, Samanid uh, established a dynasty in Ghazni called the Ghaznavids. And again, Matt, prescient with that pronunciation. We do not speak these languages. The greatest of the Ghaznavids was a king named Mahmud who ruled from 998 to 1030. He is the one most responsible for establishing the solid foundation of Islam throughout the area of modern-day Afghanistan. He led a lot of military expeditions into India. Even back then, people started thinking of uh, of, of Afghanistan to, as the gateway to these kingdoms of India. That state falls in the middle of the 12th century to the Gurid kingdom, which arose in Gur. That's a west-central region of present-day Afghanistan. Those guys get kicked out early in the 13th century by another Central Asian dynasty, and these folks are all swept away around 1220 CE by Genghis Khan. Oh, yeah, that Genghis Khan guy that's actually called Genghis Khan. I like to call him Jengi. <laughs> Jengi K? Mm-hmm. Jengi? Sure. Reminds me of that uh, tower game, Jenga. Oh, yeah. And so we include, we, we include some of this ancient history uh, because it's important to know that already, it's 1220, already two of the greatest conquerors in the world have come through this place. And now a third one appears near the end of the 14th century. The Central Asian military leader, Timur Leng, or uh, the lame Timur, also known as Tamerlane in the West, conquered Afghanistan. Then he immediately moved on to India. And when he moved on, his, uh, his children and his descendants couldn't hold the empire together. They couldn't rule everything their grandfather, their patriarch took over, but they were able to keep a hold on Afghanistan roughly for a little while. And now we get to where it, it eventually becomes a, an independent nation. As we said, you know, in 1700s, becomes independent, but there's a story behind that too. There's even more switching off. People are trying to control this. They're dying left and right. And we're going to talk about 
let's say a strategy or something that's going to ripple across time here that occurs in the 18th century. The king of Persia around that time, a guy named Nadir Shah, he was employing this tribe of Pashtuns. They're an Abdali tribe of Pashtuns, and he was using them in his wars in India. So he's he's got a, a contingency of other fighters. I wouldn't call them mercenaries, but they're they're fighters for under another flag, essentially fighting under his flag, right? And uh, Ahmad Shah, this Abdali chief who'd gained this high post within the army there, he established himself after Nadir Shah's assassination, the, the guy we're talking about, the king of Persia, a- after he was assassinated in 1747. So Ahmad Shah is, you know, looking to move up a little bit. And thankfully, this assembly of tribal chiefs proclaim him the new Shah. And then the Afghans extend their rule as far east as Kashmir and Delhi and then north to the Amu Darya and west into northern Persia. So they really just begin expanding there under the rule of Ahmad Shah. Yeah, and he retires from the throne in 1772. He's one of the few people with the (laughs) distinction of retiring. He dies in Kandahar. He has a son, Timur Shah, who assumes control. The Afghan empire survives mostly intact through the next 20 years. Now think about that time. Yeah. 1772. Mm -hmm. America is forming. Right, right. In this time period Mm -hmm. here. Increasingly irritated colonists half a world away are dreaming of revolution and saying, hey, one day there will be a popular Broadway play about us. And you may be wondering, rightly so, what does all this have to do with me? What does all this obscure Eurasian history have to do with me? When does my team enter the game? A lot of people in the West are wondering. Well, there is an entire era of history heavily involving Afghanistan that concerns just this. It's called the Great Game. We did an episode on this earlier. Long-time listeners may recall. Uh, But let's – like, let's – what's the quick and dirty? (laughs) The Great Game is world dominance. (laughs) Really, that's what it is. Mm -hmm. It's a bunch of extremely powerful countries and people deciding, hey, I want to maybe be the ruler of all this. Um, Let's see what we can do. But there are all these other people trying to do the same thing. So we have to play these mind games and diplomatic games and resource control games. Yeah, so for most of the 19th century, 1830 to 1895, to be precise, the British and Russian empires were vying for control of Central and South Asia, uh, including the country of Afghanistan. Um, This period was known, as you mentioned, Matt, as the Great Game, where both empires were trying to protect and secure their own territories they already held and also expanding outward into others. Britain was a huge player in this uh, game in that they were very concerned that Russia might take control over India, uh, which was the crown jewel of the British Empire, um, despite the fact that Russia well, – this wasn't really something that they had designs on. But, um, you know, Britain, they, you got to protect what you got and they were maybe a little paranoid. Um, F- Afghanistan became uh, once again, as you mentioned, Matt, a very um, fertile battleground. Right. You can see uh, you can see some excellent fiction based on this period of time. A work by Rudyard Kipling, 
intensely problematic author, but mm-hmm. I would I would say a talented poet. Uh, he wrote a novel called Kim, which is about a child becoming embroiled in what they later learn is the great game. Rudyard Kipling, of course, uh, would be uh, I would be remiss not to mention this is the person uh, is is the person most responsible for the phrase "white man's burden." So he's not a good dude, mm. uh, but that was a well written book. A series of conflicts transpire in real life, not just in the book. And these are these are breaking out to wars, but they don't really turn into world wars at this point. One of these conflicts, the Second Anglo-Afghan War, which was from 1838 to 42, ended in a treaty that gave Britain control of Afghanistan's foreign affairs. So it turned into a vassal or a puppet state. Until uh, 1919, when Amunallah Khan declared independence from British influence, he tried to introduce some social norms, uh, such as uh, abolishing the practice of purda, which uh, is is the is the idea that uh, women should not be like allowed to be seen or interact in public. So he was he's a more forward facing leader in some social regards. Uh, he was trying to do that, right? He was trying to. He ended up fleeing the country in 1929. People did not really uh, – pe- people were not receptive to this change. Next, Zahir Shah becomes king and for the following four years, Afghanistan is a monarchy. In 1953, a guy named General Mohammad Daud became prime minister. He turned to the Soviets, to the USSR. He said, help me out with the economy, help me out with military assistance. Also, I want to introduce some social reforms, including the abolition of Prada. He was forced to resign in 1963, so a 10-year rule there. But in 1973, he regained power in a coup, and he said, okay, now we're a republic. And he said, you know what? I get, I get the, uh, the uh, trend of history here, so I'm going to try to play these world powers against one another. It doesn't work the way he wanted it to because just a few years later in 1978, he is murdered or assassinated in a pro-Soviet coup. There's a new governing faction. Uh, the new kids on the block in this situation are the People's Democratic Party. They come to power, but they have a lot of infighting in their own jockeying for position in the hierarchy. And then, of course, they are eternally battling the Mujahideen groups that are backed by Uncle Sam. That is, was at one time seen as controversial. That is clearly a proven fact. And let's pause for a word from our sponsor, and then we'll get to the modern history. Live Nation presents Concert Week. From now through May 14th, get $25 tickets to over 5,000 summer shows. That's up to 75% off a summer full of your favorite artists like 21 Savage, Alanis Morissette, Cage the Elephant, Celeste Barber, Dirks Bentley, Janet Jackson, Megan Trainer, Peso Pluma, Sean Paul, Sum 41, and many more. For way less. Grab your tickets now through May 14th to see all of the artists you love all summer long. For just $25. $25 each. Visit LiveNation.com slash Concert Week to buy now. That's LiveNation.com slash Concert Week to buy now. Snag a job is where America goes to hire with the deepest talent pool in hourly hiring. With access to over 6 million active hourly workers, 
Snag a job is the all-in-one solution for hiring high-quality employees who can cover all your needs. On demand, tempt to hire part-time or full-time. You name the position. Warehouse worker, retail associate, grocery store clerk, fitness trainer, baker, stylist, bellhop, podcast producer. Yeah, Snag a Job's got a worker for that. With our easy-to-use platform, you're able to seamlessly post and fill available positions quickly with a dedicated customer support team to provide all the help you need along the way. Kind of nice knowing you have a talent pool like that in your own backyard, right? Snag a Job is the partner you need to keep your business running smoothly. So visit snagajob.com or text snag to 242424 to talk to an expert. Snagajob.com, where America goes to hire. I'm Katia Adler, host of The Global Story. Over the last 25 years, I've covered conflicts in the Middle East, political and economic crises in Europe, drug cartels in Mexico. Now I'm covering the stories behind the news all over the world in conversation with those who break it. Join me Monday to Friday to find out what's happening, why, and what it all means. Follow the global story from the BBC wherever you listen to podcasts. This episode is brought to you by Terminix. Terminix can't help you solve the world's biggest mysteries or take on alien life. At least not the ones you're thinking of. But they can help take care of pesky invaders in your home. Like the ants in your kitchen, the roaches under your sink, and the termites in the walls. Because when pests show up, so does Terminix. No matter what type of pest it is, they can Terminix it fast with personalized pest care that puts you in control. Their expertly trained technicians may not know true crime, but they know their local pest pressures. And with customized plans tailored to your specific situation, you get everything you need to not just get pests out, but keep them out for good. Between their speedy service, caring technicians, and over 95 years of experience, it's no mystery why they're trusted by homes and businesses everywhere. So if you have a pest problem, don't stress it. Terminix it. Visit Terminix.com to book your appointment online today. That's T-E-R-M-I-N-I-X.com to book online today. So, the Soviet era. Paul, can we get some kind of, you know, like really uh, authoritarian sounding big, yeah, that kind of music. There we go. Soviet era. Yes. So... The USSR. It's uh, it's in Afghanistan in 1979, and it really is trying to shore up this newly established regime, right, that we talked about, the People's Democratic Party that's running things over there. And the, those guys are, by the way, in the capital, Kabul. And in short order, nearly 100,000 Soviet soldiers took control of a lot of the major areas, the cities, the highways, the ways things are being transported uh, all, by all means. And here's the thing. People didn't really take to that. There was rebellion. It, it came quickly. It was all over the place. The Soviets were dealing harshly with the Mujahideen rebels and the people, you know, the families, the uh, the small groups that were supporting them. They were just taking out entire villages. Again, it like sounds so familiar over the course of our history of the mm-hmm. things we've talked about. Um, they're they're trying to deny any place where or that would be considered a safe haven for enemy soldiers to be hanging out and you know regrouping. And while this is happening, 
there are outside foreign supporters who are propping up all of these diverse groups of rebels that are fighting back against the Soviet Union. Playing the great game once again. Exactly. That that whole um, the proxy the proxy battle thing is in full effect here. And you know, you've got rebels pouring in from Iran, Pakistan, China, the the US even has some people over there training folks um, and having fighters over there. And there's this brutal nine-year conflict that just goes on and on and on. And an estimated one million civilians are killed in this conflict, Afghanistan civilians, uh, as well as others. Um, and there are also 90,000 Mujahideen fighters, 18,000 Afghan troops, and four, 14,500 Soviet soldiers, all of them who are killed in, this, in this ba- these battles, in this conflict. And the U.S. support varied uh, in, in many different ways over the course of this conflict. This, we do have to remember this is Cold War era stuff, yes. right? So, so originally – they had some suits and some agents from the company. Uh, <laughs> the company? Yeah. Right, right, right. And with a, it starts with a C? It does. This company? <laughs> it does. And, uh, and by 1986, they were becoming more um, – they were being less subtle. Uncle yeah. Sam was. Uh, they started supplying Stinger missiles to the Mujahideen, which uh, were a game changer because these Stinger missiles allowed people on the ground to shoot down Soviet helicopter Gunships. Yeah. In 1988, uh, four countries, Afghanistan, the USSR, Pakistan, the US, signed peace accords. And the Soviet Union says, OK, we'll start pulling out troops. The last of the troops leave the next year in 1989. And uh, civil war consumes the country, which should yeah. not have surprised anyone. Let, let's talk really quickly about some of the landscape there and – um, the, the mountains, the mountain ranges, the, the mountainous areas, the very hilly, uh, sometimes very stark areas where if, you know, as the Mujahideen, if you're given something like a Stinger missile when you're just troops on the ground, it's very difficult to battle against something like these Soviet gunships, the helicopters that can roll through. They can just travel across these landscapes to wherever they need to be and they're heavily armed. But, you know, if you're on, on the ground as just – a single person or even a battalion, small battalion, anywhere from 100 to 10 people um, fighting back against a gunship is very, very difficult. But if you're given a Stinger missile and you can hide out somewhere within, you know, that terrain, you can easily have an upper hand there. And again, these are ripples throughout time of things that we are going to see. We're an explosive in the hands of somebody that understands the area that has lived there. Um, you only need a few people to gain the upper hand on large military forces. Well, it's one of those things where you see it. I mean, it's even in like SNL sketches from the time and going back and watching a lot of Will Ferrell sketches from those days. And there's the one where he's the old prospector, you know? Oh, yeah. Have you seen this? It's great. But it's uh, Chris Kattan is playing the sergeant or whatever, and he keeps making the joke that it's an unconventional unconventional war. So we got to use unconventional methods, which in this sketch is having an old prospector to lead them through the, the terrain. But it's true. That's what they're talking about. That's the thing you heard thrown around constantly in the news was what an unconventional war was and required unconventional tactics. Yeah. And in this case, an, an old prospector, I forget the premise, but the, an old prospector who was like a cousin of somebody who was in command of the military isn't going to do you much good. You need somebody who has lived there, knows the history and the, the terrain. 
Yeah, and also for the record, uh, the old Will Ferrell sketches in general hold up. Oh yes, Big time. my God! Not saying that because he's technically a coworker of ours. Just oh. saying it because they do hold up. Oh, pickle shoes, <laughs> cinnamon and gravy. <laughs> so, who comes out ahead in this next iteration of the power vacuum? That would be a group known as the Taliban. They seize control of Kabul. By 1997, they have uh, they have a solid grip on about two-thirds of the country and they're starting to be recognized in the international sphere. Pakistan and Saudi Arabia, for instance, both recognize the government until, that is, uh, the U.S. enters the great game as a full-on combatant. And it's different because before proxy wars, right? Yeah. Let's call these people – Rebels, right? freedom Quote fighters. Unquote. Yeah, from yeah, men. yeah. And uh, so, fast forward, as we said at the top, in October of 2001, U.S.-led bombing of Afghanistan begins, and this is right after the attacks uh, on September 11th, 2001, on the U.S. soil. Anti-Taliban Northern Alliance forces enter Kabul pretty much right after. And this marks the official beginning of what has become the longest war in U.S. history. Across the next 18 years, multiple presidents, three different administrations uh, from both sides of the uh, U.S. political divide would continually escalate the conflict. They would send more troops. They would propose what they called surges. They would vow we were making progress in a war that we knew we could win. Today's question, what if they were lying? Here's where it gets crazy. So behind the scenes. Yeah. Everyone knew. All of the decision makers knew this was a disaster. And uh, Matt, you recently had a, a conversation that touched on some of this. Is that right? Uh, yes, quite a bit. And I, I spoke with a gentleman named Steve Hooper that I very much want to have on the show. We want to have on this show. Um, I, I forget his exact titles within the FBI, but he was a high-level person. Um, I hope he doesn't mind me saying his name. He he has a podcast on the iHeart Network that he uh, talks about some of this stuff. So I think it should be okay. But he was just talking to me about how the United States was keeping – was aware, very much aware of one Osama bin Laden and uh, Taliban forces, you know, after all of the, the conflicts and help that we've essentially given to that area. Um, and all, we know – our intelligence agencies know a lot of the operators. We know a lot of the mechanisms that, that exist out there with some of these forces. And they also knew just from past bombings like the 1993 attack on the World Trade Center mm -hmm. where a rider truck was used and it thankfully did not destroy the entire building then in 1993. But it was certainly a disaster and a terror attack and a major – a major warning sign, basically, that, oh, we need to be paying attention to this. Mm -hmm. And he was just telling me that after that attack in 93, the intelligence apparatuses were so aware of it. However, we went right back to the FBI, at least, went right back to focusing on uh, drug gangs and drug cartels that existed and were operating within the U.S. And they didn't turn their eyes towards terrorism at that point. Because there was a lot of uh, siloing of information and gatekeeping, right? Yes, because again, you think about operating outside of the U.S. where intelligence is gathered, operating inside the U.S., 
a lot of times it's separated. And there, this whole thing, it kind of became a mess, at least according to Stephen, our, our um, conversation, uh, after you create the Department of Homeland Security. And as that giant behemoth of organizations begins trying to keep tabs on things like that and organize, you know, who's controlling what, who's looking into what, um, I say a mess, but that's not true. Anyone who's out there working in any of these organizations, you know, that's not necessarily true, mm-hmm. but it was certainly the birth pains of something bigger. Oh, that's poetic. I like that. Matt. Yeah, it's, uh, it is, it is unfortunately true that many of the same people publicly touting progress in this quagmire were often the very same people lamenting the doomed situation, or at least doomed as they saw it, behind closed doors. We know this is not a conspiracy theory. We know this is indisputably true thanks to the fantastic journalistic efforts and the, of the Washington Post and the recent publication of something called the Afghanistan Papers. On December 9th of this year, the Washington Post finally won a legal battle that was three years in the making and, like the war in Afghanistan, continues today. Uh, But what did they get? What happened? We'll tell you after a word from our sponsor. Live Nation presents Concert Week. From now through May 14th, get $25 tickets to over 5,000 summer shows. That's up to 75% off a summer full of your favorite artists like 21 Savage, Alanis Morissette, Cage the Elephant, Celeste Barber, Dirks Bentley, Janet Jackson, Megan Trainer, Peso Pluma, Sean Paul, Sum 41, and many more. For way less. Grab your tickets now through May 14th to see all of the artists you love all summer long. For just $25. each. Visit LiveNation.com slash Concert Week to buy now. That's LiveNation.com slash Concert Week to buy now. Snag a job is where America goes to hire with the deepest talent pool in hourly hiring. With access to over 6 million active hourly workers, Snag a Job is the all-in-one solution for hiring high-quality employees who can cover all your needs. On demand, tempt to hire part-time or full-time. You name the position warehouse worker, retail associate, grocery store clerk, fitness trainer, baker, stylist, bellhop, podcast producer? Yeah, Snagajob's got a worker for that. With our easy-to-use platform, you're able to seamlessly post and fill available positions quickly with a dedicated customer support team to provide all the help you need along the way. Kind of nice knowing you have a talent pool like that in your own backyard, right? Snagajob is the partner you need to keep your business running smoothly. So visit snagajob.com or text snag to 242424 to talk to an expert. Snagajob.com, where America goes to hire. From BBC Radio 4, Britain's biggest paranormal podcast is going on a road trip. I thought in that moment, oh my God, we've summoned something from this board. This is Uncanny USA. He says, somebody's in the house. And I screamed. Listen to Uncanny USA wherever you get your BBC podcasts. If you dare. This episode is brought to you by Terminix. Terminix can't help you solve the world's biggest mysteries or take on alien life. At least not the ones you're thinking of. But they can help take care of pesky invaders in your home. Like the ants in your kitchen, the roaches under your sink, and the termites in the walls. Because when pests show up, 
So does Terminix. No matter what type of pest it is, they can Terminix it fast with personalized pest care that puts you in control. Their expertly trained technicians may not know true crime, but they know their local pest pressures. And with customized plans tailored to your specific situation, you get everything you need to not just get pests out, but keep them out for good. Between their speedy service, caring technicians, and over 95 years of experience, it's no mystery why they're trusted by homes and businesses everywhere. So if you have a pest problem, don't stress it. Terminix it. Visit Terminix.com to book your appointment online today. That's T-E-R-M-I-N-I-X.com to book online today. So three-year legal battle, Washington Post acquires more than 2,000 pages of, quote, lessons learned, end quote. Uh, and these are interviews that were conducted by the Office of Special Inspector General for Afghanistan Reconstruction. Or CIGAR. Yeah. yeah. And, oh, give me – I love a good CIGAR. Um, and uh, it's not pretty what's uncovered here. There was no internal consensus on any objectives, any reasons for going to war. The country was spending – Billions of dollars with no idea whatsoever what any kind of end game looked like. Um, they literally had no idea how to get out of the war. There was no exit strategy. Well, yeah, that w- if you guys recall back, and this was just to date myself a little bit, this mm-hmm. was occurring right around the time that I was going to be finishing and graduating from high school as all of these conflicts are occurring, as the debates about this stuff is happening. And I remember for the first time, not for the first time, but maybe for the first time looking at the news with a little more understanding of history after some classes that I was taking mm-hmm. and hearing people discuss this, they they would argue on the news like, well, what what is it actually, what does this conflict actually what does victory mean? What does it look like? And you right. would have even the president coming on and kind of giving you a vague, you know, it's a victory. You know, it's, it's good. We're going to victory. Right. Right. <laughs> what, like, what? What does that mean? Yeah. The, it, the thing is, the, there was not – there were some metrics for ideas of success, but there was nothing that people – agreed on with concrete steps. There was no universal definition. And without a universal definition, as uh, Chinua Achebe would say, things fall apart. Mm. Uh, The Post got hundreds of memos that are really – they're almost like – they're almost like YouTube or Reddit comments from Donald H. Rumsfeld. Uh, they were called, and this has nothing to do with the current usage of the word today. Yes, but they were called snowflakes. We know that's a more of a right wing um, pejorative on the internet today. But in this case, they were called snowflakes because they would just sort of be sprinkled on all these communications, brief instructions or comments that the that Rumsfeld would tell his employees during the course of his time working on the war. And there are things that are so informal. Like there's there's one where it says, I'm not sure who the enemies are here. Like <laughs> we don't know. We're, we're shooting at someone for sure. Uh, so altogether, these memos and these 2,000-plus uh, pages revealed by this Freedom of Information Act, uh, they function as a genuine secret history 
of what we know about the war. And some people taking a longer view of history would say, well, this is just another act in the ongoing war that has been occurring on the land of Afghanistan for much, much longer than 18 years. But here's what we learned. The reports, the journalist and the analyst at the Washington Post found four common and disturbing themes running throughout these papers. And they're pretty brutal to hear, but we looked through them and they are well-researched and there's not a ton of editorializing. Uh, So every single year covered by these papers, U.S. officials, at least some of them, purposefully refused to tell the public the truth about the war in some way or another. They would issue these pronouncements. They would say stuff that they they straight up knew wasn't true, and they would hide unmistakable evidence that for one reason or another, the war had become unwinnable. Which was an odd concept of it being winnable or unwinnable because it just didn't seem like there was one or the other. Right. Chocolate rations have been increased. Right? Yeah. Uh, And now they're going to be 80% less than they were. So they also, in these papers, we see that officials who were interviewed, and again, this this was all internal documentation, so they wanted to tell the truth. They they depicted purposeful, explicit efforts by the U.S. government to mislead the public. And then they also – You could describe it, and maybe this is a little bit too much uh, editorial voice here, but you could describe it as uh, a sort of collective disbelief in the facts, kind of cherry-picking the stuff that would be good, ignoring the stuff that would run counter to the narrative. So everybody is like – everybody's doing a thing where they're like, all right, we're going to all agree – that this is fine. Everything's great. We're going to win and stuff's going to be good afterwards. You know what? Yeah, you know what? That guy who said the house is on fire, what he meant was it's warm and cozy in here. Yes. Look at this banner. What does it say? Mission accomplished. Look, We're done. Look at that sweet bomber jacket. Mm-hmm. I mean, look at that strut, that confident gait that the president has. Mm-hmm. I mean, Seriously. And again, it's it's funny because people who consider themselves domestic uh, political partisans in the U.S., uh, like someone who would definitely hate the right side of American politics, would be uh, – would levy valid and biting criticism of the misleading PR that the Republican side was doing when they had a presidential administration. And then people who hated the the left side would levy the the same, again, valid criticism at the uh, Democrat uh, administrations because they were doing the same thing. All that changed was the brand names on the facts. It was still a bucket of poison pills. They just had different labels. Dude. You're so right, though. And I remember seeing that. We're going to have a surge, right? A surge will fix it. But that's – okay, so that's just one. Deliberate, at the very least, at the most generous, deliberately misleading the public, who is, by the way, paying billions of dollars for this. 
And here's the thing we kind of mentioned up above. Uh, this is number two, by the way. The officials from, you know, the United States and the coalition of forces, the allies that were going into Afghanistan with us, they pretty much admitted uh, openly that the mission had really no discernible strategy. Like, we don't know. There's, th- there doesn't seem to be a strategy. We've got a lot of people there. There are a lot of troops there mm-hmm. and some facilities that we're building. Um, but, yeah, we really don't have great objectives. We, we're not sure what we're doing. There's stuff on the, uh, on the level of like, well, have you guys talked to Todd? Because Todd, Todd put it really well. Like, I remember walking out of a meeting and I was like, this is for sure what we're doing. And I uh, just can't. Can't recall a hundred percent of it right now. He just seems so confident about <laughs> everything, you know. I mean, that Todd—he's just—he's he's such a—he's got a, such a good haircut. Mm-hmm. I mean, I just love the cut of his jacket. You can yeah. tell he manic—he like he goes to a manicure. Oh, place. absolutely, sure. his cuticles are impeccable, <laughs> and you just—you can't really disbelieve a guy like that. So, I, as far as I was concerned, if Todd's good, we're good. Right? Yeah, you're right. Um, hopefully. Hopefully Todd can just keep us keep that morale up, you know. And the interviewer is like Todd, who? And they go, Oh, that's a great. Uh, he was, got disappeared. Did he yeah, actually there, work here? There are a lot of. He worked. He worked somewhere in the building. It may have been the subway. He yeah. may have been a general. I, I just look, you guys. You'll know him when you see him. It's true. At first, there was this pretty solid rationale. They were going to. We were aiming to destroy Al Qaeda. Who? Was uh, you know were involved in these various terrorist acts, not just uh, being accused of involvement in the September 11th attacks, but also being active in attacks throughout the 90s that you had mentioned earlier, Matt, with certain leaders with names that you might know or people that were purportedly a part of them. Yeah, but Todd would never do that. <laughs> once uh, once Al Qaeda had been you know largely muzzled, the officials involved said. They had mission creep. The The goals got muddy and unclear, and they began adopting strategies that might contradict the strategies of other agencies or institutions, and they started having goals that were unattainable. And people who were running this war, folks are dying, billions of dollars going down the drain. The people in charge were saying, I have problems with basic questions. Who is the enemy here? I am not being hyperbolic when Donald Rumsfeld said that. Who is the enemy here? Who amidst these various complicated groups uh, and alliances can we count on as allies? And also, you know, I know it's a weird question. Drop it 4.30 on a Friday, but how do we know when we've won? Yeah, there's there's no bell that goes off like or specific person you have to defeat or a king to overthrow. Right. You know, there's no goalpost like that. Yeah, and it turns out that the third revelation years into the conflict, the United States still had a very poor understanding of of the country overall. Officials from not just the U.S., but also from the Afghan government told interviewers that a lot of the policies and initiatives coming from Uncle Sam, everything from like training Afghan forces to trying to – I'm going to say it again – trying to, whoosh, whoosh, trying to stop the opium trade, all of them 
felt like they were designed to fail, whether that's because of incompetence, because they were based on flawed assumptions, or whether because there was some sort of ulterior motive, or whether it was just a country they did not understand. Or, you know, I don't want to put my biases on it, but a country that maybe some of those people in charge just didn't care about at a certain level. There are disturbing accounts or allegations in interviews in in some of these papers where an official say something like, we were just giving consultants tons of money and, you know, somebody would fly on a plane and they would read The Kite Runner or something while they were on the plane and they would hop out and think that they understood everything about this place that has been a battleground for centuries and centuries and has been trod upon by one outside empire after another. The fourth one, which clearly is a bit of a cheapskate myself, I've been having a hard time not mentioning this yet, the U.S. flushed billions and billions and billions of dollars down the geopolitical drain trying to nation-build in Afghanistan. Nation-building is a risky endeavor that can pay great dividends uh, if you get it off the ground. It was once called colonialism. That's building a different kind of nation. I, I, <laughs> I know, I'm just kidding. <laughs> but that's, I mean, yeah, so they they wanted to, I don't know, they, they were just so out of, out of touch with what was happening. So they, there's this, there's this great comparison uh, or simile in the accounts of the early days here. It was an economic boom for the military-industrial complex, obviously for the associated energy and defense industries. It was a boom, and contractors, of course. Uh, and we can just say like that was immediately affected by the September 11th attacks and the public um, acceptance essentially that, yeah, we should probably protect ourselves more and spend a lot more money than we were. Sure. So we'll pay for it. You handle the details. Yeah. I want to feel good when I see the news and feel like I've done my part. So since uh, – so here's the here's the simile. One of the sources says money is like water and Afghanistan was like a desert. And when you pour too much water – too quickly, the land cannot absorb it. Yeah. And it becomes a wash with this money. And that I that struck me because it, it not only does it feel true, but it has the unfortunate quality of being true. Since 2002, the U.S. has allocated more than $83 billion in security assistance to Afghanistan. That dwarfs the defense budget, the entire defense budget of other developing nations. At in 2011 alone, at the peak of the war, this country got $11 billion in security aid from Washington. That's $3 billion more than what Pakistan, which has nuclear weapons and a way bigger army, spent on its entire military that year. That's nuts. They spent $8 billion and the U.S. gave – Afghanistan, $11 billion. Now, I do want to say it may sound like we're being unfair here. We have to remember that the military operators, people working for the U.S. government uh, and the, the, the contractors involved, 
they're not in uh, these rooms. They're not in these uh, these uh, boardrooms and these war rooms and so on. Th- they're being sent to a place to risk their lives, and they are they are trying to save people on the ground. You know what I mean? They're trying to help civilians. They're trying to prevent these deaths. Uh, yes, yeah. uh, but the other side of that coin is that the almost the feeling of a goalless occupation like that caused a lot of situations where, you know, a few, a a small amount of those contractors and military personnel felt as though, or at least acted as though there was no rule of law. There were no rules. That's a really good point. Things could happen there. And I think it's because that Mm -hmm. top-down guidance just didn't exist. Well, we talked too about how, you know, maybe this is hyperbolic and and I've heard people kind of poo-poo this idea, but comparing Afghanistan to Vietnam in the sense that it was very difficult terrain. It was an enemy that they didn't fully understand. uh, And it, it seemed to have empowered a lot of military personnel to commit some atrocities. Right. We also have to consider, I, I think that is, I don't think that's an off-base comparison. We also have to consider that a lot of the horror stories we hear came from the crimes of private contractors. Mm-hmm. So people are working private industry that have been subcontracted out by the U.S. government or NATO, or they come from people who were supposed to be the authorities in in like from Afghanistan. Yes. So you know there there are stories which are true of military service members being brigged uh, in in danger of being dishonorably discharged because they refuse to uh, tolerate the sexual abuse of children, which they saw firsthand. Not in not in some like not in some sketchy part of town necessarily, but like in the police chief's compound Ooh. in the police station, or having to make nice with warlords and crack a deal with them because of their influence over a, you know a region of the area. Adjusted for inflation, if we're just as they say talking turkey, for perspective. 11 billion US dollars is more than the US spent in the entirety of Western Europe with the Marshall Plan after World War II. Think about that, the entirety. But after almost two decades of help from Washington or attempts at help from Washington, the Afghan army and the police force are still not, probably not going to be capable of fending off all these insurgents. It's not just the Taliban, it's it's IS, the Islamic State, and others without outside assistance, without backup from the U.S. military. Um, I just want to jump in there really fast before we keep going, just uh, to, we mentioned the Marshall Plan, which was uh, the the program, we mentioned it was after World War II as well, but that was the program of aid, right, that, mm-hmm. we, that we gave to most of, or a lot of Europe, just to rebuild after the battles were fought in that region. Just putting that out Yeah, there. exactly. Yeah, yeah. And thank you. So there, back to the money, which I promise I'll stop sorry, harping sorry. No, on. No, no, you're good. I'll I'm, stop harping on at some point. It's just like – It's crazy, yeah. What could $11 billion do? You know <sighs> what I mean? What so, superpowers could be, be wrought or could be brought into life? Right? There was so much money flowing that bribery, fraud, and corruption, they became – Superpowered as, yeah. as tendencies and trends. One advisor 
who was working for the U.S. said that when he was working this particular airbase, many Afghan people, meaning native Afghan people who were working there, regularly reeked of jet fuel because they were just smuggling so much of it out to sell on the black market. And then we have another point about corruption within the police force. And this this comes from uh, an interviewee who was comfortable being named. Yes. In one interview, Thomas Johnson, who was a Navy official uh, serving as a counterinsurgency advisor in Kandahar province, said that the Afghans viewed the police as predatory bandits. Uh, He called them, quote, the most hated institution in all of Afghanistan. Um, And then another uh, interviewee, an unnamed Norwegian official, told interviewers that he estimated 30 percent of Afghan police recruits deserted with their government-issued weapons so they could, quote, set up their own private checkpoints, a.k.a. highway robbery, right? Right, literally. Mm -hmm. Just extorting people that were traveling through. That's what they were doing. Right, right. And uh, the other statements these officials make don't don't sound pretty. uh, But, of course, we, you know, we have to point out again that part of this is a maybe a function of these shifting goalposts, right? But to not know who your enemies are and not know who the difference between your enemies and your allies is, is, is that's tough, when, especially in a situation like this. There were other revelations. It turns out that several senior U.S. officials believed there was a realistic opportunity to cut a peace deal with the Taliban back in 2002 or 2003. Again, we're not saying it's definite. We're saying that's what they felt was in the cards. Also, when this stuff came out, you know who else was surprised? Congress. Oh. <laughs> and with Congress, it's tough. Like how many – is it performative? Yeah. Right? I have to be upset at this for my constituents so mm. they know that I was definitely upset at this. <laughs> right. And there's bipartisan uh, – there's bipartisan – anger at this, at least if we look at Senators Richard Blumenthal and Josh Hawley. They're both on the Senate Armed Services Committee, and they've already called for hearings based on these reports. Even former Afghan President Hamid Karzai gave an interview to the AP Associated Press uh, recently, and he said the Afghanistan papers proved the U.S. was at fault for his country's corruption. However, Craig Whitlock, one of the journalists who brought the story to light from the Post said, the U.S. was at fault, but the Afghan government did not prosecute many people for corruption or fraud. That's for sure. Jeez. And this, this, is, where, this is where this leaves us. Um, I know it's a high-level look, but there's so many other things to report. Well, there will be new revelations, surely, right? I mean, there's a lot of documents here. I'm glad you brought that up, Noel, because, yeah, as we record today, the Washington Post, we said it was an ongoing war for them, right? They're still in court fighting for more documents, and they're pressing Sigar to identify everyone they interviewed for the Afghanistan papers, which they haven't yet. Currently, the Trump administration is holding direct peace talks with the Taliban. A lot of the experts that the Post spoke with said that they believe the only way to end this war is to cut a deal, that militarily it is impossible to entirely defeat the Taliban unless it's something like sowing the earth with salt, a.k.a. nukes, which no one wants. Scorched earth policy. Right. Um, Yeah. Please don't do that. Anyone who's listening who has one of those things. Yeah, and and this, I mean, this is giving these out to civilians now. Yeah, 
Costco, it's, baby. Oh, it's the like, only thing is you have to buy three to get the deal. Got it. Yeah. Don't you remember in 2023 that whole declaration happened and we all got nukes? That it was the mutually assured destru- destruction agreement of 2023? I'd rather have a giant psychic squid. Those are coming too. Have, have you heard the news? The good news? Yeah, there's this guy. He's working on a giant uh, intergalactic squid thing. I don't know. I don't know the details. I have no comment. Well, are you the guy? I've no. Look, let's go to a different hobby horse. This is another thing about this story that is still continuing. And this, I don't know. This is just my, I want to be too conspiratorial. I do want to note it is a fact that currently Afghanistan still dominates global opium markets. Last year, according to the UN Office on Drugs and Crime, so 2018, right? 82% of the world's opium supply was produced in Afghanistan. Some of the uh, biggest problems in the U.S. that are drug-related come from opium. Yeah. They're not growing a ton of it here, are they? No. Like, uh, you know, the different the different uh, pharmaceutical companies that are probably going to uh, avoid too many serious consequences of creating the opium crisis. Nobody's saying conspiracy here, people. We're I'm, just we're just going. Hey, look at this. <laughs> I'm just saying. We we talked about this in a previous episode. Just how much security was devoted to what looks like from the reporting and the images that were sent back over the course of years, up until very recently that we are protecting the poppy fields, I guess, from allowing anyone to use them? Right. Well, it's also tough because you can see interviews with farmers in the area who say, you know, I'm a subsistence farmer. There there were different plans to uh, institute new crops for cash, but opium makes the most money to sell. And and the markup is huge. The worst part is those farmers are not making – what, uh, you know, nobody's going to be buying a mansion doing that. Well, it's the same way with cocaine in, in Colombia and stuff, mm-hmm. right? I mean, largely the cartels put the burden of cultivating it and growing it on these families mm-hmm. who look at it as, you know, some sort of subsistence living, but they're not sharing in the profits of the criminal enterprise. Again, elephants, war, and grass, right? When elephants make war, the grass suffers. It's... It, there's a lot of stuff that we miss, and we've got to emphasize, just on the ending note, we have to emphasize the human element. You know what I mean? People who are soldiers are not bad. People who are civilians in a country that is being subjected to a conflict are not bad either. This is a, These are all human beings who are trying to survive and the horrific thing is that a lot of decisions upon which lives hinged are made by people who will never physically travel to the places where they see the consequences of their decisions made real. I want to add to that, but I don't need to. No, so please. That, yeah, I'm right there with you. That, that is tremendously frustrating and quite heartbreaking, actually. And we know that we have a lot of survivors of conflicts in our audience today. We have many military veterans in our audience today as well. And we are fortunate because we have people who have a firsthand look at what the military call the facts on the ground. 
So if you are comfortable, you are by no means obligated, but if you are comfortable sharing your story with us, we would love to hear from you. Uh, please just let us know if it's something you're comfortable sharing on air or if you would just like to give an anonymous account. You can find us on Facebook. You can find us on Instagram. You can find us on Twitter. We're Conspiracy Stuff on uh, Twitter and Facebook. We are uh, Conspiracy Stuff Show on Instagram. We also highly recommend our Facebook community page. Here's where it gets crazy. But wait – as Billy Mays was wont to say, there's more. You can find us on as individuals on uh, some of those social means. Yes, I am Matt Frederick underscore iHeart. I think. I yeah, thought, I thought you. I thought you torched it. No, I was. I was. I was throwing people off my scent. I see your social scent. Now I'm back. Oh, I'm glad to hear it. I follow you, and I, I was worried that I wasn't going to get the. Uh, the joy of, of, of experiencing your online presence anymore. Well, look at that. I haven't posted anything in two and a half years. So it's, anyway. I would say that quality trumps quantity. <laughs> yeah. It does indeed. I try to go for that uh, MO on my social media account, singular, uh, where you can find me at How Now Noel Brown exclusively on Instagram. As though like I'm sponsored by them or something. <laughs> uh, I am. I am. On those uh, social medias as well, you can check me out at Ben Bolin on Instagram uh, and uh, Twitter at Ben Bolin HSW. But hey, you might be saying, I uh, I hate social media. I find it uh, abhorrent. I loathe it. It is unclean. But I have a story to tell you. What of what am I to do? Oh well, I, I will tell you. Because there's a number you can call and there's some other stuff. But right before we get to that, I just want to put out here that we are talking about the Washington Post and some amazing reporting that they did. But there is a paywall there. So if you want to go to other sources, I just wanted to give people a few places they could find sure. reporting on this. Mm-hmm. Um, there is one that if you just Google that you will find from The Atlantic that has a pretty good write-up on it. But the the one – the source that I really appreciated – was the uh, SIG, I think it's SIGI Online, C-I-G-I Online, the Center for International Governments Innovation. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. They have a really interesting whole series of articles about the Afghanistan papers. Yeah, yeah. Uh, and I think The Guardian has done some great work too. I'd also like to recommend, I don't know if um, if people are fans or foes of uh, Reddit, but Reddit, has a subreddit called Ask Historians, which gives some uh, fantastic background to some of the deeper dives of Afghan history that we didn't get into today. Excellent. Um, and, and that's not to say that you can't access the Afghanistan papers. It's called the Afghanistan Papers, A Secret History of the War. Uh, you can find it. There's one called At War with the Truth. Um, that's from Craig Whitlock. And you you can find that and access that. Just know that as you're going through and navigating you may hit some walls there. They're just putting that out there. Okay, so let's um, let's jump to the idea that you can call us. If you wish to, you can call 1-833-STDWYTK. Leave a message. Talk to us. Uh, just what Ben said earlier. Anything you want to tell us that you feel comfortable doing, please do. Uh, and if you don't want to do any of that stuff, you can give us a good old-fashioned email. We are conspiracy at iheartradio.com.
Stuff They Don't Want You to Know is a production of iHeartRadio's How Stuff Works. For more podcasts from iHeartRadio, visit the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you listen to your favorite shows. I'm Katia Adler, host of The Global Story. Over the last 25 years, I've covered conflicts in the Middle East, political and economic crises in Europe, drug cartels in Mexico. Now I'm covering the stories behind the news all over the world in conversation with those who break it. Join me Monday to Friday to find out what's happening, why, and what it all means. Follow The Global Story from the BBC wherever you listen to podcasts. Live Nation presents Concert Week. From now through May 14th, get $25 tickets to over 5,000 summer shows. That's up to 75% off a summer full of your favorite artists like 21 Savage, Alanis Morissette, Cage the Elephant, Celeste Barber, Dirks Bentley, Janet Jackson, Megan Trainer, Peso Pluma, Sean Paul, Sum 41, and many more. For way less. Grab your tickets now through May 14th to see all of the artists you love all summer long for just $25. $25 each. Visit LiveNation.com slash Concert Week to buy now. That's LiveNation.com slash Concert Week to buy now. Attention, true crime enthusiast. Searching for a way to unwind after diving deep into the mysteries that keep you up at night? Look no further. Introducing Lazarus Naturals, your trusted companion for CBD relief. With a commitment to transparency, Lazarus Naturals oversees every step from farm to doorstep, ensuring purity and quality you can trust. Visit LazarusNaturals.com today and discover how CBD can help you decompress and recharge for your next investigation. That's LazarusNaturals.com. Lazarus Naturals. Your partner in unraveling the mysteries of true crime. Not available in Idaho, Iowa, or South Dakota. Dealing with pests can be a pain, but relax. Terminix can help. Because when pests show up, so does Terminix. With over 95 years of experience, they have what it takes to take on any pest problem fast. If your home or business has pests, don't stress it. Terminix it. Visit Terminix.com to book your appointment online today. That's T-E-R-M-I-N-I-X.com. 